Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. There is this big space of ungoverned disorder where nothing is being done and we're just kind of holding up our hands and going, well, don't know what we could do. I'm Jason Pack. And I'm Alex Hall Hall. And we're the hosts of Disorder, a brand new podcast from Goalhanger, where we'll be connecting the dots using our own experiences as well as talking to people at the forefront of global affairs. All seeking to work out why are the world powers no longer coordinating as they once did? The trouble is the United States, but also some European societies, are so divided. How did we get here? The modern version of the culture war in which the fight that matters is not the real one. It's about winning certain kinds of arguments online. What can we do to fix it? How do you repair disorder? It's by becoming a community. Search Disorder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, I'm Stephen. And I'm Anoush. And on this week's New Station podcast... We discuss the resignation of the UK ambassador to the US. You ask us, what is Labour's Brexit policy? And we talk about social care and how it's played out in the Tory leadership campaign. So Kim Darrick, the US ambassador to... I keep saying the US... I keep doing this. Every day that this story has been going on in my free morning (laughs) email, please do sign up to it. I struggle to do the US ambassador to UK ambassador to... the presence of two countries beginning with the word united <laughs> in this story is just well luckily for you he is no more the ambassador so you won't have that problem anymore yeah, so kim until Darrick, you write about the next one kim Darrick has resigned in order to spare my embarrassment and not being able to <laughs> accurately remember his title but also because of a leaked diplomatic cable saying for the benefit saying of it, his true opinions of donald trump's administration and what they were like to work with in terms of diplomacy so it's dysfunctional he's thin-skinned various comments that anyone who's been following american politics closely for the past three years would have been able to probably make themselves. Obviously, diplomats write these things in confidentiality and and without expecting that they're likely to be leaked. And so they, they speak their minds. Unfortunately, it was, for him, it was leaked. And he's decided that it would make his job far too difficult for the next four months because he was due to leave in September anyway to carry on. So he's resigned. So as you said in your piece, Stephen, that you wrote today, he was both doing his job properly by laying out the land of what it was like to work with this US. US administration, but he was also probably doing his job properly for for stepping down because it would make diplomacy too difficult. What's really shocking is the way that some British politicians have reacted to what is essentially a foreign power trying to bully us out of one of our civil servant appointments, which is completely bizarre. I do think that British politicians can be quite misty-eyed about America. I don't think this is just a Trump thing. I think if it was any other nation, even a nation that Britain has a strong historic friendly relationship with, I just don't think they'd they'd want to capitulate or be so sort of deferential in the way that some politicians have been. 
Yeah, I also think the kind of weird US misty-eyed thing means that a lot of people, you know, not just people who are ideal... Well, actually, the people who are ideologically sympathetic with the things Trump actually believes, of course, don't think this, but a surprisingly wide number of people in Westminster and Whitehall do seem to believe that there's, like, the right combination of, like, cheat codes... Or, yeah, if you whisper, like, the right code in Donald Trump's ear, he'll just transform into, like, a moderate Republican president. To the extent that there is now still such a thing as a moderate Republican is kind of another another question. Because, I mean, in many ways, and, and obviously, as I said in the piece, yeah, once once your cables are leaked, you, you do sort of have to go. The thing is, though, is actually what, he's, what he said in the cables is absolutely true. This is a man who we know is hugely influenced by whoever he's spoken to last. The other example of that being, you know, when he invited Obama into the White House for the handover and immediately after he went, oh, maybe we'll keep Obamacare. And then, of <laughs> course, the second he talked to some other people who went, oh, Obamacare is, is actually terrible. He went, oh, maybe we'll get rid of Obamacare. But, of course, once it's been leaked, you, you can't keep your job. I do think the big problem is the way, and as you say, this kind of weird way that people, you know, some people just like, oh, this kind of weird misty-eyedness about it. But I also did think it was pretty ridiculous for people to kind of go, oh, well, he shouldn't have written it down. It's just, I, I mean, I think there might be quite big public policy consequences to saying that civil servants just shouldn't write things that they wouldn't want to see in a newspaper. Yeah, I mean, uh, this has a big chill. I mean, it could, if people start thinking, should I be writing this down? It could have a big sort of chilling effect on civil servants communicating honestly with their political masters or each other, which would be no good for, for the way that government functions. And I do think it probably is happening already, not least because since since the Brexit wrangling began, leaks have just been so much more common, mainly from cabinet and from political meetings, but also, as we've seen in the civil service, from Ivan Rogers, for example, when he said he thought it would take 10 years or something to do, to do a Brexit deal, saying his honest opinion, which clashed with the government line. And so I think Brexit has been this sort of exacerbating factor in terms of leaks, and people have found it more and more normal to leak things. The 5G Huawei National Security Council was a similar thing. Yeah, I think yeah. there has been this kind of huge increase in, in civil service leaks. I also think, yeah, I mean, as with all cultural taboos, right, once it's broken, people just kind of keep doing it. I think it is also, to put it mild, mildly, suboptimal that um, people like Gus O'Donnell were saying, oh, I voted Liberal Democrat. Once you've been head of the civil service... I, I don't think you should then say, oh, this is how I voted in these coming elections. I just think it makes it harder for sitting civil servants who already have so much suspicion anyway mm. from a large chunk of, of the political class. If you then have people saying, oh, I voted Liberal Democrat, or you have people going, maybe Jeremy Corbyn is too old or too infirm. And I think it all adds to this, as you say, this mood of people not wanting to give advice because they're worried that it will end up with their names in print or them being described as an enemy of the people. Yeah, I feel in a, it's sort of a similar journey to what the BBC's taken. So that idea of Labour criticising them about that story about saying Jeremy Corbyn is unfit for office, they've got the suspicion of the left now, as well as that traditional right-wing suspicion of sort of state institutions that the BBC always suffered from. So they're, they're being attacked from both sides and maybe not necessarily always making the most judicious public statements like that uh, Gus O'Donnell voting statement that you mentioned. I don't know, I feel like that's quite, it's, it's a reflection of what's happened with the BBC and that can make, you know, some reports by the BBC haven't always been ideal on the Brexit story and perhaps some ways that the civil service are, are communicating about Brexit aren't ideal in a similar way. Yeah, no, I think there is a lot, a lot in that parallel which actually hadn't occurred to me at all. But it's, you know, it does feel like, you know, the same pattern of, you know, 
both a conscious and unconscious degrading of our shared institutions by various political forces, and also um, this weird sort of kind of overcompensation for an institutional cynicism towards something through just being quite craven and not treating it like a... Yeah, I just feel like a lot exactly. of the BBC's coverage yeah. of Brexit has never treated Brexit like it's a legitimate political phenomenon. It's just gone from being something to be belittled to something to be self-abased to. Yeah. Now it's time for a section we like to call... You Ask Us. Indeed. And the question this week for us is... What is Labour's Brexit policy now? Now, Stephen, this is something you've been following from the bitter beginnings. So why don't you try and lay out its its new policy for us that it came about this week? So this is one of those things where I do worry, as I think is always the problem whenever you kind of like cover a beat for a long period. Have I just got sufficiently used to layers of abstruseness from political parties? And I think it's actually quite simple. Their Brexit position is they would have a referendum in any circumstances on any Brexit deal. If that Brexit deal is negotiated by a Conservative government, they will prefer remain to that Brexit deal. If that Brexit deal has been negotiated by a Labour government, their opinion on it will be decided um, when, they, yeah, when they've got their deal back. On whether or not that's on whether better or not, than Remain. Whether or not but Remain will always Remain. be on the but ballot. But Remain will always be on the ballot. Now, there are many things about that position that I think are innately comical, right? Yeah, I mean, one, it means that, you know, so you're going into a negotiation saying... Okay, so we're at the end of this process. We will take the deal you've <laughs> given and we will compare it to the status quo. And then we, the government, could potentially <laughs> turn to the public and go, this deal's a bit rubbish, isn't it? I lo- uh, I lo- that, that bit of the policy really made me laugh. <laughs> yeah, like it's one of those things where obviously it's, a, it's essentially what, what Harold Wilson kind of semi did with his like renegotiated terms where he went, oh, I support the idea of, of joining the EU, but I have some doubts about the terms. Here are my very minor tweaks. Here's a, you know, I'm going to be above the fray, but my cabinet will take different positions on it. Now, obviously, if it works out for them as well as it did for Wilson, I think they won't care, then it, it looks faintly comical. I mean, also, I just think this whole, I guess, as with 75, right, there's this, this added comical thing that we know that the majority of Labour MPs are not sitting there thinking, hmm, I wonder if I would be pro-Labour's deal or pro-staying in. <laughs> They'd be pro-staying in. I mean, it quite literally is like, you know, the like the, the, the horrid bit of salad in a not particularly nice meal that you have to have <laughs> before your pudding. Like, and it's not a serious stage for a lot of the people involved. But I don't really get why people think it is hard to pass. Yeah, it's not complicated. I mean, it gives MPs the opportunity to actually answer the question straight when they're constantly asked, are you now the party of Remain? If you're an MP who supports Remain or thinks it should for electoral purposes, then you can now say, yes, we're the party of Remain, uh, depending on your audience as well. And if you're not, you can say, well, you know, we want to put um, a deal that we've negotiated back to the people. It's only fair that they get to decide, which, you know... Yeah, our deal will be the best deal, just the best deal. France will pay for it, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, exactly. Um, So I, I do understand why people think Labour's position has been complicated or has been sitting on the fence but I think this result makes it easier for all MPs who are asked those difficult questions on the airwaves which surely is a good thing in terms of sounding like you've got a little bit more integrity or clarity. Yeah I think it yeah not not to sort of go over the ground we did last week entirely but I think essentially they they have this position now that the big gamble is 
do voters want to, A, give them benefit of the doubt and want to be able to think about other things? Because it's a Brexit policy which, if you want to give the Labour Party the benefit of the doubt, whether you're a Remainer or a Leaver, and if you want to move on to voting on other issues, then there is enough in this policy that you can be like, I've got my pound of flesh mm. and I can move on to thinking about other issues. If you don't want to do that, of course, then there are things that you can look at this policy and go, but this isn't enough Remain, it's not enough Leave. I mean, it's odd because... I'll, The thing I think is a bit strange is I think a lot of the people who say their policy is complex do so because they are media outlets which wish the Labour Party ill. However, I'm really strongly inclined to agree with the complaint the Liberal Democrats always have that saying that Labour's Brexit position is complex for a long time was like a charitable donation to the Labour Party, right? Mm. Their position in 2017 was not complex. It was was Leave. Yeah, it was Leave. It's just one of those things. It was written in black and white. At no point did Jeremy Corbyn like go, oh, but... Maybe I could, it was it was an explicitly pro leave policy, mm. and I just think that parts of the media going weirdly, despite that, the parts of the media doing it were bits which mostly didn't like Labour Party, kind of rolling their eyes and kind of going, "Oh, Labour's at it again." Were really helpful to the Labour Party and were an active impediment to the Liberal Democrats and the Greens. Yeah, I think that I think that about Labour's opponents. I also think that about the people who back a people's vote, so the people's vote campaigners, who have also been saying, oh, you know, Labour's all over the place, Labour's been on the fence. That's not actually true. Yes, it has had a short period straddling the, the fence since its 2017 position, but it was a party of leave. It wanted to honour the Brexit referendum result, and now it's got this more Remain position. So I agree with you. I think that it was quite charitable from the people's vote side of, of Labour opposition as well to say oh they're all over the place rather than just to say they don't back remain i think i'm more inclined to be forgiving of it with the people's vote because like the reason why the people's vote campaign is so incoherent is because it's like is is it a campaign of like young people who want a social europe well some of them are is it a party of veteran labor faction fighters who want to get rid of jeremy corbyn yeah well some of them are is it a campaign of liberal democrats who want to rehabilitate their party is it a campaign of pro europeans who you know who think that the 2016 referendum result is a calamity or well, the thing is it's all of those things mm. and that is why it is so incoherent in a way right the problem that pro europeans have is they've they're in the kind of like late noughties Euroscepticism thing where they've got lots of sort of energy around their grassroots. There are lots of people who are, yeah, there's kind of a, a, a growing sort of pro-European media ecosphere in this country. Mm. And there are lots of people who are willing to put their own hands in their pockets to fund various pro-European campaigns, both small and large donors. However... They haven't yet got to the stage that Eurosceptics has got to by the 2016 referendum of being able to lock some of, there's no other way to say this, fruitcakes in, in a cupboard somewhere. I mean, like, let's take, say, Lions by Donkeys, right? The world's most stupid poster campaign based <laughs> on the idea that if you put a slogan by a Leave politician without any commentary... In a Leave in, town. In a Leave town, <laughs> people won't, won't agree with it. They'll go, oh, wow, I can't, I can't believe that someone said this this thing that I agreed with three years ago. And voted for. Yeah, and now then it's been put on a poster with no commentary other than he didn't tweet it, he actually said it. Yeah. N- now, well, I see... Weirdly, the... In, the, in, the co- in the design of a tweet, though, which I don't really understand. Yeah, like the yeah. whole... The, the, essentially, the thing is, is that the problem pro-Europeans had before 2016 is that there was not any kind of mass pro-European movement in the country. The problem now is there is one, but it has not yet produced leaders or a quality control mechanism. Bluntly, the, the fact that lions by donkeys have managed to several times have to go, oh, we're really sorry that we've 
published Anne Widdicombe's like views on homosexuality without any kind of like thing on a billboard without that hitting their ability to to organize I think is a short-term problem I don't think there's actually any way around it because that is just the nature of being a cross-party yeah. uh, campaign of that kind but how do you feel about the MPs that they've got compared to the sort of original Eurosceptic sort of a few mad MPs on the back benches who didn't have that much influence but then suddenly did because they've got you know a lot of MPs in the Labour Party who back a people's vote but I feel like they, they don't have that support in Parliament that they need to be a significant political voice I'm not sure if that's right but I mean ever since the Change UK split it feels like they haven't had a very coherent sort of voice in parliament that's particularly helping them i think you know they've they've still got you know your people like your philip wilson's or you know your bridget phillipson's or then like not affiliated with the people's vote but the another europe is possible people like clive lewis do give them a kind of yeah they bump them up yeah yeah the essential problem that a second referendum has always had in this parliament is that sort of core of labor mps who won't vote for it and the vast chunk of Conservative MPs who have decided they won't contemplate one either. I'm not actually convinced that either of those things can be fixed. Mm. I do think that a lot of the time that campaign has decided to deal with the existence of a problem it can't fix by simply pretending it doesn't exist, being very aggressive when anyone points out that, you know, Caroline Flint exists. Pick any almost any Conservative MP who's not a named supporter of a second referendum at random. They do exist. But I kind of just don't buy that it matters. Like essentially, right, the the interesting dynamic about about this summer, right, is there is a really, I think, impeccable case in terms of the actual data about where voters actually live, that becoming a pure party of Brexit or a pure party of Remain is not a stable path to a majority for mm. either Labour or the Conservatives. Yeah, maybe thanks to our terrible electoral system, you hit the sweet spot where your twenty six percent of the vote means you can win a majority. But you really, at that point, are sort of like you know, going let's let's do something crazy and hope it works out. But the Conservative Party, its activists want to be a pure party of Brexit. They want Boris Johnson, so they're going to have to try and make that work. Labour, it's the settled will of the majority of the Labour movement, small and large L is that they want to be a party of Remain. So the leadership is going to have to find a way of making that approach work. And in an odd way, despite the fact that I think it's actually probably not in either party's interest to be the party of one poll or the other of Brexit, they kind of can't seem to stop it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's that's true. And in terms of the, the Labour Party, I do think that it was sort of pushed into its position more by the fact that this was the Liberal Democrats' policy going into those those local elections and the European elections, rather than it being sort of a, a push from among their MPs for a people's vote. Although I'm not sure if that's necessarily fair. Maybe I know, that's I, a bit I, of a cynical reading. But no, yeah. I think I think that it is true. I think partly because right, the central problem that the majority of, you know, sort of second vote backing Labour MPs had is the, before the Liberal Democrats' success in May, yeah. you could not construct a political case for a second referendum position for yeah. the Labour Party. Their leadership is already unpopular with leave-in-kind voters anyway. The votes they needed to pick up are people who voted to leave. They are probably at or near peak Remain anyway. And Remainers had shown a astonishing ability to squint at Labour's Brexit policy. And the second the, the squinting changes, the calculation to the Labour Party then becomes, OK, well, two-thirds of our vote is this way. We've got to consolidate that two-thirds. I think it is possible, and this is what I, what I always love about making a, a confident pronouncement about a, a universe when we don't, in fact, exist in, is there's no way of being disproved. But I think it's possible that 
if you didn't have that institutional push towards a second referendum, then maybe the Labour Party could have just gritted it out, waited, continued to have a pro-Brexit position, used that to reassure Leave voters, and then those angry Remain voters would have come home thanks to first-past-the-post, to fear of Boris Johnson, etc., yeah, yeah. etc., However, because of the existence of those MPs and activists saying we want an, we want another referendum, because of the success of the Liberal Democrats and the panic that causes in you know quite a large chunk of the parliamentary party. I mean, don't forget there are more Labour MPs who've had the Lib Dems in second or have had the Lib Dems hold their seats, and there are MPs who that is true of for for UKIP slash the Brexit Party. Mm-hmm. So I think taken together, you do not get the shift without without the Liberal Democrats' electoral performances, partly because. It is a big risk, right? I, I do think one of the one of the things that often gets obscured. Obviously, it, it is not a difficult decision for Corbyn to make to go. We need to be a party of of Brexit, but it doesn't actually change the fact that the electoral argument for his was quite good, is quite good, and it is not clear how either Labour or the Tories are going to be able to succeed as parties of one particular poll of the referendum debate. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. So Anoush, talk to me about social care. Well, rather happily, I think, for the country, social care actually unexpectedly became a talking point in the Tory leadership campaign over the last couple of weeks. Both candidates have had to ask questions about it. It kicked off with Jeremy Hunt saying that he thought social care cuts had gone too far, which shows quite a lot of chutzpah for the previous health secretary. But he said he saw, you know, rows and rows of hospital beds filled with people who should have actually been back at home, back in the community, but there wasn't that social care provision available to help them do that. So he kicked off by saying that and he's come up with a policy. He wants a sort of opt-out insurance policy, a bit like we have our pensions to fund your social care in future. And he's also said that he wants more funding for local authorities to fund social care, but he hasn't said how much. And he also wants this bizarre idea, I think, of a uh, tax incentive for different generations of families to stay living together so that you look after your elderly relatives, which sounds like a horrendous idea to me but those are his pronouncements and although there's actually not that much policy detail in those pronouncements compared to what Boris Johnson has said so far everyone's like oh he's a man of policy because Boris Johnson's only thing has been he wants cross-party consensus on funding social care which is something that parties have been talking about for for years and never actually succeeded in doing and I I'm quite sort of cynical about when people say we need cross-party consensus because it's a bit like kicking the issue into the long grass because when are you going to have this cross-party commission on something? You're not going to do it. Yeah, Particularly not in a time of such division. So those are what they've said about the subject. Both of them are wrong. I mean, we've had this House of Lords committee report that came out last week, Economics Committee, that came out last week, which is chaired by a, a Thatcherite Tory, Michael Forsyth, and he was saying, look, I would have wanted an insurance system like the one Jeremy Hunt is proposing, but we took the evidence from the insurance industry and from pensions experts and they said people will never buy into this because people don't expect to need that level of care 
either when they're older or when they're not so old, which can happen because it is a bit of a lottery. You know, the majority of people don't need that social care, but you might do. You might need it for a long time. You might need it for a short time or you might not at all. So they're saying that that unlikelihood means that people just wouldn't buy into it like we do with with our pensions. So that policy doesn't work. And then in terms of them both wanting to sort of move away from austerity, I mean, we discussed this last week, so we won't go over it again. They've not explained the political justification for austerity while also wanting to suddenly pump way more money back into local authorities again, which is obviously what social care needs because it's provided by local authorities. So both of them have been quite contradictory and they haven't given enough policy detail. But the fact that it has been part of the conversation shows that this is going to be one of the biggest challenges for the next prime minister. I mean, we talk about Brexit a lot, but this this is already a funding crisis that that's impacting people's lives. So 14% of over 65s in 2018 had an unmet care need. That's quite a lot of people. And that's only going to get higher as there's more people of working age who need social care and an aging population as well. It also means that councils are spending all their money on social care, which they have to fund and spending less of it on the things they don't have to fund, like, you know, the things in your community that you're seeing quite rapidly disappear. So if we don't have a prime minister who can get to grips with this in the next parliament, it really will go from crisis to complete breaking point, I think. So, yeah, as the person, yeah, kind of in our team who you know, goes out and looks at this stuff sort of up close. Local authority cuts is one. What are the things that need to happen to fix social care? Well, yes, more funding for local authorities is a big thing. I mean, that's the emergency funding that that they need. They've they've lost eight billion. So they basically need that up front to even stay standing. But I do think really the way that social care is funded is all wrong because it's it's a structural issue. Basically, we've got far too many people who need social care and the NHS is squeezed because of the the pressure from those people on hospitals and on A&Es and on hospital beds. So we need a new way of funding it. And one of the proposals that actually makes quite a lot of sense to me, though I'm not, you know, I haven't looked into it in a, in a way that I can make a, a proper conclusion, is to have sort of free personal care for everyone, a bit like we have for the NHS. So the basic level of social care that you need, not specialist care, but that basic so that people can have access to the basic care that will potentially mean that they don't have such desperate social care needs later on in life. So this is to benefit people who are living at home, but don't have a condition that is treated by the NHS. So like people with Alzheimer's, for example. Isn't the essential problem that when you come to the question of what you would raise to fund it, the obvious policy lever you know, striking in the last decade, both political parties from quite different wings of their political, you know, both Nick Timothy and Andy Burnham mm. in 2010 and 2017 looked at it and went, oh, so we'll have some form of inheritance tax. Obviously, with Nick Timothy, you had the slightly more lunatic thing of going, well, I can't call this inheritance tax. So let's instead have this weird lottery where if you lose a certain amount, you lose everything. But if you don't, you're fine. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the problem with that, which was quickly labelled the dementia tax and basically like ruined all efforts to try and come up with a social care funding model since then, is that, yeah, it's a lottery and it really punishes people who need long term care and it sort of uses the value of their house and that means that people who don't go into residential care really lose out. So it doesn't really make sense. And then the death tax, which was Andy Burnham's sort of torpedoed idea, is something that just wouldn't fly because I think inheritance tax is so unpopular already to sort of tax people's estates after they die just didn't fly either. So 
I think general taxation is really the only way that you get around that. That's obviously unpopular with right-wingers who don't like putting taxes up in general. But I do think that it's the fairest way because it's not just old people who need social care. It's working, I mean, it's working age people. And that, that the majority of the p- proportion of working age people who need social care is going up. So, you know, there is a case for Why it. Why is that? You know, I really don't know. Every time I read that, I don't know. <laughs> it's the same with special needs children as well. So I don't really understand why, why that is. I, is it population growth? I'm not sure. If you know, right? We'll in. have to come back to you. Sorry, listeners, to, to not know that. Yeah, so, I mean, that seems like the fairest way of doing it, but obviously increasing taxation is never popular. So that's the problem. But uh, having a hypothecated tax or a, some form of death tax seems to be far, far less popular. The first with the Treasury, the second with the public. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Stephen Bush, and my colleague Anusha Kellyan. It's recorded by Emily Bootle and produced by Nick Hilton. Our music is licensed under Creative Commons. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.